Hello, this is Greg Perry for The Historic Preservationist. In this episode, we are going to encapsulate and expand upon early glassmaking in the colonies, uh, particularly Wisterburg in Alloway'stown, New Jersey. Let us proceed. Introduction. A dozen or so glass houses were established in the American colonies in the 170 years of settlement before the revolution. Very little is known about these pioneer endeavors, and only a few objects can be positively associated with them. Several glass houses failed in the 17th century, and the industry was revived in 1739 with a glass works near Alloway, New Jersey. The factory built by Caspar Wister, 1696-1752, of Philadelphia and continued by his son, Richard, 1727 to 1781. Endured nearly 40 years and apparently produced glass continuously until the Revolutionary War. Other colonial entrepreneurs entered the glassmaking business, but none were able to repeat the success of Wisterberg. The first glass houses built at Jamestown in 1607 and 1621 were undertaken with the idea of sending glassworks back to England where glassmakers struggled to compete with continental products. But by the end of the century, English glassmakers has risen to prominence for their brilliant and heavy leaded formula table glass. The American colonies were naturally perceived as an important market for these wares. Still, there were ambitious colonists like the Wisters who were determined to compete with the British imports and make their own bottles, window panes, and tablewares. This was a decision that could go not to be made lightly since glass houses required considerable capital to erect and maintain, and the manufacturing process was based on raw materials of very specific properties. The greatest challenge was finding craftsmen who were trained in what was considered the art and mystery of glassmaking. Restrictions on the emigration of British artisans meant that most of the glassblowers who came to the colonies hailed from continental Europe, especially areas of Germany and Bohemia. Caspar Wister himself was a German immigrant who arrived in Philadelphia on September of 1717. When he left his home in the small farming community of Hillsbach near the Necker River in Baden, he had no idea of his future in glassmaking. The eldest son of Hans, Caspar, and Anna, Claudia Wister, Casper received no formal education in his childhood. His father served as forester or huntsman to the Elector Palatine and before being lured to the New World. He later wrote that his family and friends all tried to sway me from making that journey. Parting was very difficult, but Wister recalled, my heart was so taken with the new land that I would not be able to stay another day in Germany. So he traveled to nearby Huddleburg, and from there he set off to Rotterdam to embark on the ship for Philadelphia. Buttons. Wister's training as a prince's huntsman did him little practical good in the American colonies. But his own account, by his own account, he had but nine pence to his name when he landed in Philadelphia. And he even owned nothing but the shirt on his back. After spending five pence on a loaf of bread, he found work on the docks hauling ashes. 
Soon he learned the trade of brass button making in Philadelphia. Exactly how this came about is quite unknown, nor has the button maker he trained with been identified. Casper, in turn, instructed his son Richard, who carried on the business probably well into the 1770s. Buttons were a necessity, a major part of the 18th century clothing, and were made out of many materials, from silver to glass to mohair. In this period, brass ones were designed for utility rather than show, and chosen for strength rather than fashion. The Wister's brass buttons were guaranteed to last seven years. Their durability and low cost, about 13 and a half pence per dozen wholesale, meant that Wister buttons were especially suitable for clothing for the working classes. 18th century dictionaries and encyclopedias describe the various methods of making buttons out of brass. Round pieces of brass were cut from large sheets and hammered with complex punches upon concave wooden molds to form the button cap or plate. The button maker decorated the caps using iron punches with an engraved pattern. Sometimes the cap was filled with cement to strengthen it as well as to preserve its decoration. A flat brass disc with a wire eye was then soldered to the cap. Finally, the entire button was turned on a lathe and set to polish the rim. Simpler brass buttons were made of a flat disc to which an eye was soldered. Sometimes brass was cast into a single disc. Philadelphia buttons, as made by the Wisters, became famous throughout the colonies. After an apprenticeship with Casper Wister, Henry Whiteman opened his own button brass manufactory in New York City in 1750, where he claimed to make the finest Philadelphia buttons available throughout the colonies. In 1760, he warned the public there are a great many of counterfeits sold in this city for Philadelphia buttons, which, upon trial, has been found to break very soon. But these Philadelphia buttons manufactured in New York are uncompromised and like no other. Unfortunately, it is not known what visual characteristics these Philadelphia buttons had, in addition to the renowned durability. The buttons existed here descended in the Worcester family and are believed to be examples of the most famous Worcester buttons, the Philadelphia buttons. The Worcester family. Both Casper and Richard Worcester styled themselves as brass button makers throughout their lives. Although that trade was not the major source of their income, of course, it was the initial success of his buttons that launched Casper Wister on a career path that was very circuitous. Only four years after arriving as an impoverished immigrant, he was able to buy a house and lot on Market Street, a large and spacious street that would quickly be composed of the best houses of the city and even sitting next to the Dr. Benjamin Franklin. After Wister mastered a trade and acquired some property, he turned to the matter of family he converted to the Quaker faith in 1725 and married Kathleen Jansen or Johnson, a prominent Germantown Quaker family. Worcester's conversion proved to be one of his most sound financial moves of his lifetime because Philadelphia's rapidly expanding economy was largely due to the efforts of a select group of Quaker merchants. 
The ties of religion were strong, and even through the though he was German and probably would never fully fluent in English, Wister was assimilated into the elite group just because of his Quaker marriage. Caspar Wister was clearly destined to succeed after this uniting. During the 35 years he lived in America, he amassed one of the greatest fortunes of the period. At his death in 1752, his estate was valued at over 26,000 pounds, a sum that did not include the value of the glassworks in Alloystown or his lands throughout New Jersey. This dramatic success is not fully explained by the few surviving records. The most plausible explanation is that, like so many colonists, Worcester was an avid investor, a land speculator, and created the bulk of his fortune by buying and selling. By 1738, he was successful enough to consider investment in the risky business of glassmaking. A special act of the Pennsylvania Assembly was passed in 1754 to enable Worcester to trade and to buy and hold lands in the province of Pennsylvania. Records indicate he was quick to become involved in the real estate market. In 1730, Worcester bought 2,000 acres for seven pounds per hundred acres. Seven years later, he sold the tract for 53 pounds and that's in Pennsylvania currency, per hundred acres, allowing for the exchange differential between sterling and the provincial currency, Worcester's profit was about 500%. He also sold land to the Pens, as verified by the deed documenting the sale of 10,000 acres in Lancaster County to Thomas Penn for the sum of 1.88 million pounds. When he wrote this in his will, Worcester made specific bequests to Pennsylvania lands that total nearly 6,200 acres in addition to seven lots of lands with buildings in and around Philadelphia. Richard Worcester, in turn, added significantly to the Worcester holdings in Cumberland and Salem County, New Jersey. On official documents, Casper Worcester is often identified as a merchant a term which reflects another aspect of his business life. He had a retail store on Market Street in Philadelphia, in addition to his button manufactory. Correspondence between Worcester and several merchants abroad shows that he imported a diversity of German goods to resell also, from spectacles to textiles. After the glassworks opened at Worcesterburg in Alloway's town, he stocked a country store there also. This became an important source of supplies, not only for the factory workers, but their families, but also for the neighboring population in Alloway and Salem and Woodstown. When the glassworks was put up for sale after the revolution, the description of the property included a convenient storehouse where a well-assorted retail shop had been kept for almost 30 years. It is a good stand for sale of many goods in any country was listed in a local paper. The Glassworks. Exactly what led Casper Wister to build Glassworks what may never be known in Alloystown. There were numerous glass houses in Baden, in Germany, but none in the immediate vicinity of his hometown in Hillsbach. 
In his autobiographical notes, he makes no mention of glassmaking in Germany. There were earlier unsuccessful glassmaking attempts in the colonies. However, Casper must have been aware of another glassworks erected in Northern Liberties outside Philadelphia by the Free Society of Traders in 1683. Because it is still standing there in 1736, and he owned property himself just around in Northern Liberties in Philadelphia. Richard Wister, however, seems to have believed that their New Jersey glassworks was the first to be erected in Northern New Jersey, more so as a, as a major manufacturer, not as independent craftsmen. Certainly, any businessman would have been encouraged by the tremendous economic growth the Mid-Atlantic region experienced in the early 18th century. In 1739, the same year Worcester began to make glass, Philadelphia had a population of 10,000 people and was the admiration of all the people who saw or heard of its flourishing condition in lands, improvement in buildings, houses, and shipping. Manufactured of many kinds, increased in plenty, commerce and trade, and great numbers of inhabitants included. In considering a glasswork, Worcester would have looked far beyond the markets of Philadelphia to the rural communities of Pennsylvania and New Jersey, where the numbers of inhabitants were also rapidly increasing. The initiative for the glassworks may have not come from Worcester's vision, but from an overseas correspondent. From the beginning of the venture, it was conceived as a partnership between Worcester and four glassblowers known as the United Glass Company in Germany. Perhaps the four glassblowers decided, like many of their countrymen, that America could provide the opportunity much better than Europe. With the glass industry in decline in Germany in the early 18th century, with their specialized skills and limited personal resources, however, such craftsmen would have wanted to be this sure, willing thing for investors to underwrite for this endeavor they were about to take. They may have approached German businessman Wister New, who in turn proposed the idea to Wister on their behalf. It is difficult to assess the market for glass in the region prior to 1738 to see if Wister was encouraged by the demand. Philadelphia's two major newspapers published in the 1720s carried only three advertisements for glass, but by 1740 there were over 20 merchants who carried glassware as part of the general stock in the city. While much of the glass used in the 17th century in America came from Venice and other continental glassmaking centers, the occurrence of continental glass in the colonies diminished significantly in the 18th century with the rise of the British glass industry. Among the few examples of Central European glass known to have been used in colonial America are the presentation goblets made for Casper and Richard Wister, probably in one of the Thurigan glass houses in Germany. Just as the British government sought to prevent the importation of goods from the continent, it was also determined to discourage rival manufacturers in the colonies themselves. Central to English colonial policy was the understanding that colonies would provide markets, not competition for British products. Not surprisingly, the erection of the Worcester Glassworks in Alloway's town and the fact that it was 
brought to perfection so as to make glass was quickly reported to the Lord Commissioners for Trade and Plantations through the customs collector at the port of Salem, New Jersey. As Caspar Wister said, it was not for honor of England to suffer manufacturing of the colonies. While some colonial authorities seemed to ignore the crown policy towards manufacturers, the New Jersey House of Representatives seemed, in the opinion of the Wisters, to be acting against the interest of the colonists. When the House determined to increase the taxes levied on the glassworks, the partners petitioned for relief, pointing out that the making of glass is a considerable advantage to the country, not only as it saves the money that must otherwise be sent abroad for that commodity, but it also brings cash in for quantities exported to other countries. British policy notwithstanding, they stated that it is no unusual thing in wise governments to encourage new manufacturers by granting bounties and immunities to those who induce them. In this same period, the company faced county taxes that had risen dramatically. In 1746, the glassworks paid 20 shillings beside an additional charge levied on Worcester for his role as a merchant. The following year, the glass house tax was 40 shillings, and by 1749, the amount was increased to three pounds. Indeed, the general feeling in the province was that the glassworks was quite profitable, though the Wisters themselves claimed that only the works had yielded but small profits and had been a greater benefit to the public than their own pockets had been. In 1752, when Jonathan Belcher was governor of New Jersey, his opinion was sought by some would-be glass entrepreneurs in Massachusetts. He wrote, There is no wiser or better measure to go into or retrieving miserable circumstance of your province than to promote manufacturers among yourselves. Indeed, Belcher often wondered that gentlemen of substance have not long before this set up a glass house for which as much better accommodated than anyone in the providence there such could work has already turned out such a great profit. Thus, in some quarters, domestic manufacturers began to be encouraged and became supported, while to the crown their importance and success were minimized. Sixteen years after Belcher's advice, each governor was asked to submit a report on the manufacture in his province. New Jersey's governor at the time was William Franklin. His father, Benjamin Franklin, referred to the reports from the other provinces in outlining what his son's response should be. They're all very much in the same strain, that there is are no manufacturers of any consequence. All speak of the dreariness of labor that makes manufacturers impracticable. These accounts are very satisfactory here and induce the Parliament to despise and take no notice to the Boston resolutions. You have only a report on glass houses for coarse window glass and bottles. Governor Franklin understood this implication. His import and report to Whitehall includes the following disdainful description of Wisterberg and Casper Wister.
The glass house was erected about 20 years ago in Alloway's town in Salem County, which makes bottles and a very coarse green glass for windows. Their glass is only used in a few houses in the local counties, only by the poorest of people. The profits by this work have not hitherto been sufficient, it seems, to induce any persons to be set up for more employ in the colony. Without complete factory records, it is difficult to determine the financial status of Witsterberg. The one extent account book covers the period between 1741 and 42 and 1766 and 67 seasons and indicates that over the 26-year period, the four original glass blowers produced a total of 38,000 pounds worth of glass. That is pounds as pounds in money, not weight. The company's expenses for those years amounted to only 9,000 pounds. These sums may not represent the complete output of the factory, but only the arrangements among the factory's four founders. This is quite astonishing. In the late 1760s, British glasswares disappeared from the colonial marketplace as a result of the Townsend Acts and importation agreements. This had a significant impact upon America's infant glass industry. A few colonists decided to start up new glass houses. Henry William Steagall, who had been making glass in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania since 1764, hired English glass blowers to create the English-style glass to fill a void in the marketplace. Richard Wister could have followed suit but chose instead to stay with German craftsmen. Some colorless and colored table glass may have been tried at Wisterberg at this time, but the focus of production remained utilitarian. Wister did remind the public that because his glass is of American manufacture, it is consistently clear of the duties of American manufacture, duties of the Americans so justly complain of, and at present it seems peculiar that the interest of America to encourage her own manufacturers, more especially those upon which duties have been imposed for the sole purpose of raising a revenue. Worcester's position was ironic because he had been and continued to be an importer of English window and glass tableware for his store boutique in Philadelphia. Little is known about Wisterberg during the turbulent years leading up to the Revolution, and the exact circumstances surrounding the closing of the works are not clear. In letters to her husband, Sarah Wister lamented the cares and troubles attending carrying on such a business, and alluded to worker unrest in Wisterberg. Glass continued to be made in the early years of the Revolution but the factory seems to have closed down during its operations sometime in the late 1776 or 1777. A letter written from the glass house in January of 1778 indicates that almost everyone had left the premises by that date. Two months later, the New Jersey militia moved into the headquarters and set up its company in the glass house in Alloway's town. Richard Wister advertised the property for sale in 1780, but it remained for his children to divide up the land after he died the following year. 
Caspar Wister plans for the glass house must have been still well underway in 1738 because in that year he acquired over 2,000 acres of land along Alloway's Creek. Eight miles from Salem, New Jersey, the site is designated as Glass House H on colonial maps from at least 1758 through 1776. Wister's choice of a well-wooded tract indicates his intention and attention to the tremendous fuel needs of the glass furnaces. Locating a glassworks on navigable water was so important for transportation of raw materials and the finished products to be at times rowed out and then sailed out of Alloway's Creek to the Delaware River. Benjamin Franklin must have echoed Wister's reasoning when he advised another potential glass manufacturer that by means of the navigable water, you can carry your glass to market cheaper and with less risk of breakage. How convenient is this to be located on the Alloway Creek? No contemporary illustrations of the glassworks are known, but a period advertisement and a letter provide many details about the glassmaking facilities and operations. When Richard Wister put the property on the market, his advertisement was clearly detailed. The glass manufactory in Salem County, West Jersey, is for sale with 1,500 acres of land adjoining it, with two furnaces and all the necessary ovens for cooling the glass, drying wood, and it continu- contiguous is contiguous to the manufacturing are two flattening ovens in separate houses, a stone house, a pot house, a wood house fitted with tables for cutting of glass, a stamping mill, a rolling mill for the preparation of clay and making of pots, and at a suitable distance are ten dwelling houses for all of our workmen, as likewise a large Manson-style house containing six rooms on a floor with bakehouse and washhouse, also a convenient storehouse. There are about 250 acres of land with fence, a hundred acres whereof is mowable meadow, which produces hay and pasturage sufficient for the large cattle stock and horses employed by the manufactory. There is a stabling sufficient for 60 head of cattle with a large barn granary and wagon house, The unimproved land is well wooded and 200 acres more of meadow that may be made suitable soon. The situation and conveniency of procuring materials is equally not superior than any other place than right here in Town, New Jersey. According to this situation and description, the main building included two furnaces where the glass was melted and worked. The necessary ovens probably included a fitting oven where preliminary melting took place, as well as a lair where the glass was gradually cooled and kneeled. The wood for the furnaces had to be thoroughly dried, hence the reference to an oven was for that purpose. Auxiliary power buildings contained the flattening ovens for making window glass and the equipment needed to cut large sheets into panes of the desirable sizes. More specific information about the operation of the glass houses can be learned from Benjamin Franklin. 
1746, he received a letter from Thomas Darling of New Haven, Connecticut, who wanted to build a glass house in Connecticut. Darling had heard of Worcester's undertaking and sent Franklin a list of detailed questions. Franklin was a good, it wasn't a good position to answer this query. He was a neighbor of Worcester on Market Street and at his request came just at the time when Franklin was working closely with Worcester on the production of glass needed for Franklin's scientific experiments and his famed glass harmonica. Franklin describes the furnace as a rectangular one typical of supreme German technology. About 12 foot wide, 8 foot long, 6 foot high, has no grate, the fire being made on its floor. On each side of the furnace is a bench or bank of the same materials with the furnace, which on which the pots of metal stand three or four on a side. He noted that the furnace was built on bricks of white clay, which needed to be renewed at every blast. As Whisper told Governor Belcher, the clay for the furnace bottoms was but poor, but often gave way. Franklin reported that the glass house consumed 2,400 cords of wood annually. The heat of the furnace was so intense that in the nearby New Jersey climate, the glass blowers could, not only work, could only work from October through May. Finding suitable clay for the pots was a continuous problem, but the banks of the Alloway Creek were laden with clay, perfect for this situation. Franklin claimed they had initially imported clay from England, but the source of the clay was so great found locally that there were no longer needed the importation. Casper Wister told Governor Belcher he had not yet been able to find any clay and that will stand for the fire. As well as a result, the pots broke frequently with the English imported clay. So important was good clay that when they find an extra local source beside Alloway's Creek, the Wisters would buy it up immediately and store it. South Jersey sand was also the primary ingredient of Wisterberg glass, with additions of potashes and lime. Other ingredients, such as manganese, were also needed for the refined glass table. As glassmakers have done throughout history, the Wisterberg glass blowers recycled broken bits of glass collected, it's called collets, to facilitate the melting and coloring of their batches.